that one therapist who, for the first time, was so comfortable in talking about it, it was like Atlas holding up the world on his shoulder. It was like she came underneath and held that with me. It was such a huge burden off my shoulders just to say it and not terrify somebody. That was huge. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. We certainly don't talk about it enough. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors so that we can help more people in more places feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. You can also check the show notes for an additional way to reach out through a recorded message. You can learn a little bit more about our programs, presentations, ways to volunteer. We can always use some additional help. Our small but growing group on the Signal platform. And of course, our recently launched membership program. Follow that link to learn more about what it is and how you can get involved and why it matters to us. And hey, if that's not your thing, listening is more than enough and sharing it with people is more than enough. And if you want to rate or review the podcast, I think that's only available on Apple, by the way. That also helps people find it. So all those things are super helpful for us as we try to do this work and share this message and keep the conversation going. Now, we are talking about suicide on this podcast, as the name suggests, as we do every week. It's not a great fit for everyone. We know that. So take that into account before or as you listen. But I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Dale. Dale lives pretty close to me right here in North Carolina, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hello, Dale. So one, thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for having me and bringing attention to such an important subject. Of course. Would you be comfortable sharing with our listening audience how we first I, I imagine you either you heard the podcast, but you reached out to me, but it wasn't specifically around this. Would you be comfortable sharing as background or context what that email was about? And then we'll get into the other stuff. Oh, yeah, sure. I was surfing through podcasts, looking what was available regarding just mental health in general. Suicide is a topic that's close to my heart. I was actually surprised to find a podcast that was specifically related to the subject. So uh, I decided to check it out. I actually started with the oldest versions from 2020. I heard you mention living in North Carolina, some of your experiences with facilities here, and that (laughs) resonated with me. So I decided to send an email to the address that you have listed more with the intention of being in touch with someone who was familiar with 
the subject of mental health and maybe some specific things in this area that I might could get involved in. And we did talk, and I don't know if we came up with much. And part of that was, and I enjoyed that conversation, but you know, uh, it's limiting to some degree of what you can actually do, no? It is. Actually, there are a couple of larger organizations, one of which is NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and I've done uh, a good amount of volunteering for them. Other than that, a lot of it is limited as far as volunteers, and the whole system is so just put together piecemeal. It's hard to get leads from one area of mental health to another. And lining up opportunities is not easy. And oftentimes the people that are attracted to the work are the people that have suffered themselves. So let's give them more hoops to jump through. A question, and there may not be an answer here, but do you have any idea why or any thoughts on why it is so put together piecemealy, arguably more so than many other, let's call them industries? It's a good question. I don't have a hard and fast answer. Some of the things that I have experienced that may contribute to that is a lot of psychiatric services, at least in this area, because we have several major universities that are teaching universities and are have their own uh, medical centers attached. They want to have their area unto themselves. They don't share information or if maybe one particular facility doesn't specialize in an area, they're not going to go outside of their own uh, community to find better resources. And we also know a lot of it comes down to money. A lot of the things that the state offers, they could do so much more if they Mm. personnel. I think just the personnel would help with the programs and facilities. It's just not a priority. It seems that anything that would be helpful to people seems to take a, a back seat. So you're saying, in my words, not yours, if it's helpful, if it, generally speaking, if it's helpful for specific people, back seat, if it's helpful for organizations or deep pockets, maybe front seat. Exactly. If they mm. can make money off of it at some point, great. But investing in people, you're not going to make your money back immediately. You know, it's it's going to take time for somebody to recover yeah. right. from a right. mental illness or whatever and be able to go back to contributing in some way to our society, monetary standpoint or not. Right, right. whatever the metrics you're using. And it is usually a longer term play and uh, harder to measure sometimes, right? We can measure that the solar panels are generating X number of dollars in savings or whatever, uh, this stuff is different. I think it's an interesting choice of words when people use the word contributing to society. Uh, yes, that is one way to look at it in terms of monetary contribution. But is that really the main thing that we're doing here? Is that what our goal is? Is uh, I mean, they all overlap. If your mental health is better, presumably you can contribute more and that helps the tax base and so on and so forth. But can't we just stop at helping people? People assume contributing to society means in a financial way. But that's telling. Um, it, it is very telling. And everyone can contribute in one way or another. I think financially, that's a very small piece of it. And, and mental health affects generation after generation. So it's mm-hmm. going to continue to get worse unless we step mm-hmm. in at some point 
to improve the system and it needs to target kids for prevention purposes, but also adults so that we can have a better life, contribute, quote unquote, be it working for pay, working as a volunteer, being good parents to children. It'll pay dividends. It'll take a little while. And it's not something that can be measured and assigned Mm -hmm. a number. And the people that are deciding will be dead by then. Right. We could uh, talk about this stuff all day long. The main purpose here, though, was to talk about specifically suicide. So these are always challenging transitions for me. And just to ensure we're on the same page. Have you ever attempted to take your own life? I have. Okay. How many times? Three. You've attempted three times. When was the first? The first two were actually back to back in the year 2000, following sinking into a very deep depression, which caused me to have to withdraw from graduate school. The loss of a dream, but then created all the problems of how am I going to keep my apartment, etc. So there were two back-to-back, and sometimes I have a tendency to blow them off in a way because knowing what I know now as a healthcare professional, it, it was not going to work. I'm not trying to make light of it, but it's very- you, you, you weren't going to quote unquote succeed or complete in the attempt is what you're saying. Well, that's I. That was my intention. That was my intention, but I attempted again in June of 2016 and had almost 20 years of experience working in hospitals as a physical therapist. I had gone through graduate school, so I knew physiology, pharmacology, all that kind of stuff. So when I attempted in 2016, I knew what I was doing. I knew what my intention was. I Mm -hmm. knew what would happen in my body. It should have worked. And even the doctors say they don't know how I'm here. Why do you think you're here? Honestly, I'm not sure. I like to think it's because I have something important yet to do. And this is part of it. Speaking out about what I've been through, mental health issues, especially suicide, trauma, Mm -hmm. and child abuse, because that's Mm -hmm. something that I've gone through. So anything I can say or do that might help somebody else, it kind of, in a way, takes away, erases one of the bad things that happened to me. I'm trying Mm -hmm. to level the playing field. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Let's go back and then we'll roll through a few things, okay? You're from North Carolina. I grew up in South Carolina. I've okay. lived in this area now for 30, almost 32 years. So you're from and live in the Carolinas? Yes. You said one thing about your childhood that I wanted to ask you about, and you'll share only what you're comfortable. You dealt with child abuse. Yes. Uh, I was sexually abused from the ages of two to 17. That's a capital A abuse. Yeah, that's one way to put uh, it. Uh, okay. I don't know a lot about that. Right. I mean, I'd like to believe if I haven't gone through any something, I can still attempt to have empathy or curiosity mm-hmm. uh, without having anything near like that personally. How does that contribute to your ultimate suicide attempt in 2000? I know that's a big question. And I know there was other things happening in your life, I'm sure, as well. But the answer is simple. It has oh. everything to do with it. It has absolutely everything to do with it. There is a little bit of genetic predisposition, a little bit of depression on either side of my family. Nothing major that I know of. However, as you said, start at two years of age and all through essentially my childhood, 
while your brain is developing and it develops in this atmosphere of never knowing what to expect, mm-hmm. being fearful, having to focus on everything outside of you. A lot of people say hypervigilance, and that's true. So you can't pay attention so much as to what's going on inside and learn how to deal with that because you can't talk to anybody about it. And I think, too, my brain growing up in that constant fight, flight, and freeze situation, I think my brain developed around those chemicals, kind of altered the brain chemistry, some of what they're finding out in trauma now. So, yes, Mm. PTSD, the depression, I think it has to do not only with the psychological, but the neurochemical as well. It is a complete setup. Mm Mm-hmm. I, can I make the assumption that that was one person and that one person was a family member? Yes. And how many people in your family or perhaps even outside of your family knew that was taking place? At the time, nobody. And today? Today, at least as far as family members, very, very few. The family that I've made here over the last 32 years, a number of them know about it. And I'm pretty open about it now. Is that the kind of situation where at some point in your life, if able, you confront this person in some way? A friend of mine found out when I was 17, we went to school together. She reported it to a teacher who, of course, had to then report it to the authorities. Right. So the authorities got involved. You know, this was 1986. There wasn't as much known about childhood sexual abuse or how to handle it. So their main thing was they wanted to keep the family together, if at all possible, which is what was wanted to be done. And my feeling guilty in having torn the family apart. What are you going to say when they I mean, they actually came to me the second day. The law enforcement said, do you want him prosecuted? Why is why are you asking that? That's not even that shouldn't even be up to me to put that kind of pressure on a kid. I think about it now and it is infuriating and incredibly defeating to not be backed up by so many different people on so many different levels. Yeah, you were failed probably countless times. I'm got I'm not, not going to ask you a question that I hear in mainstream media sometimes because I don't like these questions, but I bet you heard these questions at points, which often begin with, why didn't you dot, dot, dot? Yes. People ask dumb questions, myself included often, but I try not to. (laughs) If my math is correct, in about 30 years old, you're in grad school and you had your first attempt. Correct. Up until that point, how often uh, had you thought about the idea of ending your life? I only had had thoughts of suicide maybe within just a few years of that, you know, before that, and really maybe not seriously. I think I've dealt with some level of depression. I can see symptoms as early as like 11 years of age. Mm -hmm. So it's more of coming to recognize the depression, where it came from. So living with a mild to moderate depression my entire life, that's my normal. So until the nosedive in 2000, it really never went through my mind. When you use the word nosedive, was there a particular uh, incident or series of incidents that where the nose dove? <laughs> I think probably the triggering, one of the triggering events was the stress associated with, with graduate school. Mm-hmm. It's where I wanted to be, but it's pretty stressful. So yeah. it's good stress or bad stress, it has an effect on you. 
The mm-hmm. abuse was not something that I had dealt with. Uh, so three quarters of the way through graduate school, my mood went down in a way that I had never experienced. I had never had major depressive disorder up to that point. Is it a disorder if your body or your mind is responding to trauma or is that order? I guess it would fall under the PTSD. Sure. You're not seeing a therapist. You're not getting treated. Not at that time. I had seen a therapist or two off and on, you know, prior to that, started in college, but not consistently. And so I know those two are back to back. So was there something, and I know we're going back a ways and the memory is weird. Everybody's, I mean, what happens that day? I mean, is it is it something that is quasi impulsive? Are you planning for a few weeks? I am not an impulsive person. I think part of it was you can only push, at least I could only push the issues from the sexual abuse, push that away for so long. Eventually it's going to catch up with you and you're going to have to to deal with it. Then my mood just tanking the way it did. I had to drop out of graduate school, which was the loss of a dream. I had to give back my financial aid. So how am I going to pay for rent? So all of that just kind of came together, but it's the overriding factor is the depth and intensity of the emotional pain when you are at that level of depression. Physical pain? Not really. I mean, there is a physical component, mm-hmm. but emotional pain is just as real as physical pain. The same part of the brain lights up when you're in emotional pain as it does when you're in physical pain. It's just yeah. as real. Do you tell anybody? About the attempt or about the depression? I'll ask both, but I meant about the depression, emotional pain, all that stuff leading up. I don't think I really talk too much about the depression. I don't know that I really knew a great way to talk about it. I was busting my butt just to get through school. And I realize now that's what I did a lot of times is I just bulldozed my way through things. And at this point, I could no longer do it. And when I couldn't hide the depression anymore because I wasn't getting out of bed, I wasn't taking care of myself. Of course, people close to me noticed. And when I first mentioned thoughts of suicide, that was the first time that I went to the hospital. You mention it and boom, you're off to the hospital because that's how we respond often. Or was there a conversation and then a decision that you might've been a part of? I think it was pretty quick. I think Mm -hmm. when I first started saying something out loud, even close to that, because I didn't come right out and say, hey, I'm suicidal, did it more subtly in terms of, you know, sometimes I think I'd be better off not being here. Right. softens the blow, but really it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think some of that was I'm closest to my mother and my family. And I had a partner at the time. So somewhere between those two, I think I must have had a conversation, but I don't remember specifics. And do you go to the hospital before the attempt or is it after the attempt? I actually went before it had been on my mind. I had kind of planned it, but I didn't want anyone who knew me to have to find me. Find you in the hospital or find you dead? Find me dead. Okay. I didn't want anybody I knew having to find my body. I snuck in a bunch of pills when I went to the emergency room. You went to the hospital to kill yourself? Essentially, yes. I think I was hopeful that something could be done. I could get some help. 
And then when I discovered how I was going to be treated and what I experienced, I was done. Was that North or South Carolina? North Carolina. In the hospital, tell me, which hour or day of the hospital do you, is this it? Do you try to overdose? I do. When I walked in and talked to the receptionist at the emergency room, as soon as I said I was there, she quit looking at me and talking to me and started addressing the person with me. Mm-hmm. They immediately took my took me back. Mm-hmm. Don't get to sit in the waiting room at that point. They don't tell me anything about what's about to happen. Never. They never do. My vital signs were taken. Mm-hmm. I was immediately taken to a room where mm-hmm. I had to give up everything. Mm-hmm. Clothes, jewelry, every shred. I knew none of this. I didn't know what I was walking into. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. You got the fuzzy, did you get the fuzzy socks with the white rubber on the bottom? Yes. Go into a room and this heavy, solid door with this tremendous lock that just seems to echo when it closes. Got to ask permission to go to the bathroom. And then somebody had to go with me. Uh, I have no idea what's going on. And then when I get to the unit, I don't know how to explain it. It's like you're not... You're not a person anymore. Your opinion doesn't count or or you're incompetent to make any decisions for yourself. I go because I'm asking for help and I feel like I'm treated like a criminal and being held prisoner. Oh, no, no, no. You're not treated like you're a criminal. You're treated as a criminal. Was the Was that emergency room by chance on floor number three? The ED, the emergency department's downstairs. The unit was fourth floor. All right. So we were at a different place. Um, Probably not too dissimilar, but but probably close enough in many ways. Uh, At some point soon in this conversation, you are going to be swallowing some pills. But one thing that stands out is they searched you. Where the hell were the pills? (laughs) At that point, they did not do searches the way they do now. Okay. Okay. Were they in a body cavity? No. Now that I'll have to backtrack. I did to keep my bra because that's where I had them in a minimum. Okay. Okay. See, guys can't get away with that. Exactly. I mean, unless they wear a bra or something like that, maybe underwear. Get the pills in. These were meds that were prescribed for you originally, or you got them in some other way? They were a mix of some prescription meds, a number of Tylenol. It was, it was a mix of stuff, maybe 30 or 40 pills. You're up on the fourth floor. Uh, how do you, where do you go to a bathroom, get some water? After we went to bed, lights out, you know, I had a glass of water on the bed beside me and took a little handful at a time. What happened? Well, it was early. It was right after lights out. I wanted to have enough time for things to take effect, but they do like, I don't know, 15, 30 minute checks at the time. Um, and usually that's just like cracking the door, making sure you're in the bed. Yeah, exactly. They figured out (laughs) that I had done this. I'm not sure because I was not coherent at the time. I don't, I don't know. Did you fall asleep? I know you didn't die. Right. Yeah, I fell asleep. I just didn't, I didn't come to until I was in an intensive care unit bed where they had given me the the charcoal and I'm shooting it all up. All right. At some point, somebody finds you know what's going on. Immediate treatment. Save your life as best they can. It obviously works. I'm imagining they punish you even more after that. I guess they decided they couldn't either help me or I was too much of a risk. I'm not sure. But I was immediately transferred 
to a state hospital um, that doesn't exist anymore. Mm, I can only imagine why. <laughs> How long were you in that facility for? I think two or three weeks. Bad, good, in between? I won't say it was bad because I've had worse inpatient stays, but mm-hmm. it definitely wasn't helpful. It wasn't therapeutic. It was a holding, it was a holding cell. Hard to kill yourself there. Exactly. I found when I was there, and it was for a much shorter period of time, though, that the patients were kinder to me than most other people. Uh, birds of a feather, who knows? Commiseration. Not all. They had a few people that worked there that were cool, but you know, they're doing their jobs. You get out. Now you said the second attempt was shortly thereafter. Was that after you get out of that hospital, that facility? Yes, I don't. I don't remember how long it was, but the suicidal thoughts didn't go away. The depression didn't go away. It doesn't happen that quickly. Not usually. So it wasn't long thereafter. Decided I needed to try to get some help again. Went back to the emergency room to try to be admitted. And this is where it gets interesting. Going back to what you said about being criminal, that facility went back to the same facility. I'm pretty sure they just decided they didn't want to deal with me after my last visit. So they got me a bed at the state facility again. And this is where I found out that when you're transferred between facilities, you get put in handcuffs and shackles and you know hand shackled to your waist, put in a marked car, got a fully decked out officer or two handguns, everything to be transported. And I've never done anything wrong in my life. I've never been aggressive or violent. And I'm being marched out of this facility as a criminal in front mm-hmm. of everybody in the waiting room. Humiliating. Was that they take you up to Butner? Yep. Which is another hospital in uh, that area of North Carolina. Not the best reputation. I've heard some good stuff, but mostly all these places fucking suck. How long were you there for? I think I was there for three weeks. Let's remind the audience here. You chose not necessarily to go to Butner. You wanted help. And I'm also assuming, and tell me if I'm wrong, once you get out of the original facility, there wasn't a boatload of people doing all kinds of things to make sure that that you got the right meds, stayed on your meds, had support groups, found a counselor, dealt with the paperwork, made sure you had transportation. Pretty sure that didn't happen. You would be right. Right. So shocking that you're going to continue to probably find yourself in a very precarious situation, which now you wind up in Butner after being fucking humiliated publicly. Uh, Tell me what happens there. And is that where the second attempt happens? It is um, essentially did the same thing. Oh, they didn't they didn't pick up on it the second time. Look at you. You're sneaky. Yeah, I think the second time I think the second time I did it in my underwear because I don't think I was allowed to have a bra, but they let you keep your underwear. So, yeah, I'm, I'm being sneaky. But I again, I went looking for help right. as much as anything. But I, yeah. I, I took it in case. How far into the Butner experience do you do it? Two days, maybe. Same thing at night, water? Yes. I have a very vague recollection of being wheeled down a hall and somebody doing a sternal rub on me, trying to keep me awake. And again, waking up in an acute care hospital, handcuffed to the bed, by the way. Why do you think they did that? The handcuff or restrained. Let me qualify that. But I remember not being able to move one arm because I was a risk to myself. You really think that was the reason? <laughs> they say patient safety is what comes first, but they have to protect themselves too. I'll put that nicely. 
Is it the patient safety they're curious about or the consequences of losing a patient? I'd prefer if they were just transparent about it. I mean, just be honest about it. It still makes you an asshole, but stop pretending this bullshit. And people will hear this, probably not on this podcast because, you know, we get people who are already sort of on board, but I don't think this is a lot of hyperbole we're talking about here. Really, my I, I might have a slightly acerbic or, or coarse language, but that aside, this is, this is factual and this is this is common. Oh, absolutely. You just don't hear much about it. Yeah, you don't. Well, let me back up a little bit. In doing volunteer work with people with that have some kind of mental health issue or mental health professionals, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. things of that, that you hear it. You hear it a lot. In the bubble. In the bubble. In the in the echo chamber. Right. Which is better than nothing. That's for damn sure. I mean, especially, hey, it helps to hear that in a weird way. You know, I feel a little better that you also went through something shitty. I know that makes me a terrible person, but I wasn't the only one. Okay. You know, there's something to that. I would love to be able to say that after probably over the years, 15 admissions, unfortunately, I can't say other than keeping me safe that any of it was helpful. It is it is housing. It is crisis intervention. It's expensive housing. Oh, very much so. Let's be clear about that. This isn't just like dorm style, super cheap or free housing. This is luxury priced, shitty housing. Agreed. For often dangerous conditions. Dangerous sometimes. Yes. 15 times. So you're in and out. Normally they were clumped together. You don't go in for an average of a week and come out and everything's Oh, so much better. I'm glad I'm alive. Let's move on. So it's kind of a, what they call the revolving door over the course of a year or whatever, trying to get help and not getting it. We can't even discuss what's very difficult to measure is loss of hope throughout all that time. I think that's one of the most devastating things, yes, is especially that first time or two when you go and you're really expecting something for them to make a difference. It doesn't happen. Your life ain't getting better. Those places aren't helping. There are fewer, fewer resources. You lose hope. You you would not be human to not lose hope. That would be a very bizarre response. Losing hope would be the actual logical, reasonable response there for almost any human being. And you've already, and you're already starting in a tough spot. And this is not going over weeks, but months and years. You say you're in and out over the course of years. When was the last hospitalization? Last hospitalization would have been, I think it was August 2020. Because we were just getting into the depths of COVID. So June 216, third and final attempt. Tell me about that. And then let's pop forward to that other hospitalization, if you're okay with that. Sure. Uh, About the attempt itself? That was the third and final one, right? And you said, I believe you had learned some things based on lived experience, professional experience, and otherwise, and thought it would work. It obviously didn't. But what, what, what was that one about? I had come into my second episode of major depression, had been in it a couple of years at that point. All those years from 2000 to 2016, I had gotten back into therapy, had been admitted a few times and ECT was suggested. Mm -hmm. So had a couple of different courses, have probably in all that had somewhere around 45 treatments, didn't help. But I just want people to hear this. When we talk about struggle, and resilience. I want you to hear what, what Dale's saying about resilience. 45 fucking times. Just saying. Didn't help and came out with significant 
memory issues. And I know some people will say it has saved their lives. And I am so glad I will never do it again. And I actually have a little PTSD-esque reactions now. Mm-hmm. I go into the, a regular hospital treatment. Wow. Wow. So in 2016, how did you actually try? Leading up to it, again, I had gone through maybe 60 or so medications. I had tried and tried and tried everything that was put in front of me and nothing had worked. I was already two years into this major depression that without really going into, you can't just say depression and describe the depth of it. Very limited by words, of course. The deplete, the feeling of depletion and utter hopelessness. And I'm, I'm tired. And I see that the folks around me who have stood by me and were still standing by me, you know, we've all said it before. We don't know what else to say. And this is still happening. Mm-hmm. So once I saw the wear and tear on other folks, too, it was like, I can't I can't have that. I overdosed again, knowing what medications will lower your heart rate and respiration to the point that if you take enough of them, it will stop. And hopefully not be too painful, but okay. Yeah. I went to sleep. We don't need to give details, but Dale and I don't live too, too far from each other. I'm just thinking about it for some weird reason. My brain always does this. What was I doing in 2016 that 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 day or evening Dale was overdosing? I don't know why I do that. Was I at the gym? I'll do that. Was I, was I at Trader Joe's? I didn't know you, obviously. You're taking a bunch of pills, and this time you're smarter or you know more. Question, as you're taking the pills or shortly before, you want to die. Because of the pain that I've been in, utter depletion of any fight that I have left, the emotional pain. And you tell nobody what you're doing. No, I didn't tell anybody. Yeah, I when I took the medications, I went laid down in my bed. And honestly, it was the most peaceful I have ever been. You think that was the drugs or just the fact that you were ready to die? No, I immediately took the pills and went laid down. It was just the fact that I didn't have to fight anymore. It takes so much energy. Was there any other thoughts you can recall? I know it's a while ago and blurry and also, was there anything else? The biggest thing was knowing that the people who love me were going to be in pain. I was going to be causing them pain. But my thought was, I don't want to say they'll get over it, but they'll, they'll get to where they can deal with it. And hopefully they will understand that I am finally not suffering anymore. I think that's an important point. Yes. When you wake up, what is the first thought or feeling you recall? Well, apparently sometime after I overdosed, I got up and moved around the house because I was found three days later on my floor in a coma. Oh, shit. And yeah, I went to the hospital. I was, of course, went straight into ICU. I was not expected to live. Friends and family were told to make arrangements. Nobody really knows how I'm still here. I was in ICU about two weeks. I have a flash or two of something in the ICU, uh, trying to pull off oxygen and stuff. But my first solid memory, they had transferred me to a regular room. And my first solid memory was realizing where I was. Mm -hmm. It was there. And I was pissed and heartbroken at the same time. And I thought to myself, you can't even kill yourself right. 
the one thing that I had left in my control when I attempted was at least my own life. It ain't easy to kill yourself. Okay. So it's not what it's worth when you say you couldn't even get that right. It's not easy. Well, I didn't want to do anything violent or messy. Why not? I don't like guns. Again, somebody's going to have to find me. Somebody's got to clean it up. I felt like I knew enough about the pharmacology and what I needed to take that that would be enough. You were wrong. Obviously. Are you feeling good that you were wrong or do you wish that you were right and you were dead? I'm completely honest. I wish I'd have succeeded. 2016. Mm -hmm. You're not heartbroken that we wouldn't have met? Well, I wouldn't have known that then. That's true. Do you wish that it had succeeded in 2000? I guess so. I don't I don't think about that very often. It's mm-hmm. it's weird because being a medical professional, I almost blow those two attempts off because obviously what I know now it was not gonna work. 2016, you get through all that. Eventually you get out of the hospital. I have a few more questions about that. And because your family knew, I'm curious. Uh, but 2020, you lounge up. Is that the next time you're in the hospital or were there other times in between? No, that was the next time I just started. I felt my mood going down again and the thoughts of suicide, but not like planning or anything. And I decided to go ahead and go inpatient, preemptive strike. Preemptive strike, but the same place? No, I'll take that back. I went to an emergency room somewhere. They didn't have a bed there. So I was transferred to a place in Raleigh. How long did you stay? In the ED for two, two and a half days before that bed opened. And then I stayed at the psychiatric facility, I think six days. That was what, two two plus years ago, COVID. Oh, yeah. And that made it extra ugly. <laughs> and they were not prepared and not adjusting. Mm. We had been locked down at that point for what, five months, I guess, five or six months. Mm-hmm. How many people in your life know about your 2016 attempt? In my personal circles, uh, um, that's a hard one. A dozen, 15? Um, as far as like support groups, and I've done some speaking. So there are a lot of other people that know, right? but they're not people that are in friendship circles. Right. How many of those people, particularly those in friendship or family circles, or even maybe even support, when you're talking about this stuff, you feel like they're hearing you, that they're accepting you, that they're okay with you and your decisions? I think it's it's indicative of a lot of your other personal relationships. Mm-hmm. You know who you can trust. You know who can handle these sensitive issues, who understands the emotional aspects. You know, some people are kind of like you and how they handle things emotionally. And those are the people that I know that I can trust, I can talk to, who get it. And then there are the folks that you know, they don't they don't do emotional stuff. So you just kind of steer clear. That's not a judgment. Maybe not from you. I can I can judge. Uh, well, you know, well, there's there they overlap, but it's not just the emotional stuff. It's the communication stuff. You know, there's ways to communicate, and there's ways that aren't helpful. Oh yeah, I can talk to them about the obvious. Some people will definitely check in with me. How are you doing? And if it's not a good day, they're like, "How bad is it?" They'll ask. And then there are the folks who they're not going to mention. They're not going to ask. They're not comfortable with it. How many people know that you're talking to me about this today? Mm, Six or seven. All right. So you're pretty active out there. You got a support system. Well, I've deliberately told some of those folks for the the support. Yeah. Put it out there. 
I have a cheering section. I have a cheering or curing? Cheering. That's also curing in a way. In, in a way, yeah. I was going to ask, what helps you the most? Uh, are you on medication? I am. Have you had a diagnosis you agree with? I do, actually. I, that's kind of uncommon, but I do agree. What is it? Uh, the major depressive disorder and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. You see a therapist or a counselor? I do. You like him or her? I do. And I will probably see one for the rest of my life. And that's okay. Do you have a risk of telling them too much about suicidal thoughts that they would put you in a hospital? Not the one that I'm seeing now. I have had a therapist in the past who I discovered quickly that if I mentioned really almost anything about suicide, she was going to send me to the hospital. So I mm-hmm. learned to keep my mouth shut. Mm-hmm. I've only had maybe two therapists who were really comfortable talking about it. And the first one that I could really, I mean, really was okay with it. It was such a huge burden off my shoulders just to say it and not terrify somebody. That was huge. You think you'll listen to this episode? I think curiosity will get the better of me. So, yeah. What's one thing that helps when you're having a really shitty day? I have a number of things that I will use, but I think the biggest one and the hardest one that I'm, I'm, I'm still working on it recently discovered just trying to say it's okay for this. If it's a shitty day to just not put any pressure on myself to do anything. I like being busy. I like doing things and getting things done. And if when I sit on my butt and don't do anything, I feel guilty about it, whether I'm having a bad day or not. Self, mm. That self-compassion piece, I think we all know it's pretty hard. That's very true for me. Hell yeah. Two more questions, and then I'll leave it open to anything else you want to add. Uh, question number one is, uh, is there a myth or perhaps two myths that you want to dispel about any of this stuff? There are a lot of them, and I've heard a few on your podcast. Other big one that I don't hear very often that I'd like to get out there is that for someone who has made an attempt, that doesn't make them incompetent or incapable. Mm. As a human being, they are no different Mm. after the attempt than they were before. So for someone who is, you know, they're successful, they got a job or a family or whatever, that hasn't changed with the attempt. You're the same person. The other question I had is I believe you are, if my math is correct, in your what, late 40s, early 50s? I'm 53. You're 53. Uh, if you've heard the podcast, you know I typically ask this question. So the number I'm going to choose uh, for us today is will you make it to 55? Yes. Will you die a natural death? The sake of conversation called suicide, not natural. I don't know. And I'm not avoiding the question. It's just that I can't, I can't predict the future. I've learned to never say never. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do everything that I can to stay healthy. Who knows? And, and if you can predict the future, please let me know. Cause I'm going to be getting a one-way ticket to Las Vegas. <laughs> um, we'll be the first person I contact. <laughs> thank you. Is there anything else that you want to add? I just, I guess, continuing to promote talking about it. And I mean this also with just mental health, period. People just don't want to talk about it. So when I am speaking to people or whatever, yes, language is important, but I don't necessarily target just saying mental health condition versus mental illness. It's like, just let's just start talking about it. Then we can correct the language. Mm -hmm. And I think that is especially true when it comes 
to suicide. There's a very, very big difference between the suicidal thought coming into your head, thinking about what it means, would you want to do it, and planning for it. Those are very different things. And I think our professionals do the best job that they can, but I think there needs to be more research and more education around those things, how to talk with a client about it, because I think a lot of either, you know, people who have taken their own lives, those who have tried can be helped if they feel they can talk about it in the early stages before actually attempting. Because that one therapist who for the first time was so comfortable in talking about it, it was like, you know, Atlas holding up the world on his shoulder. It was like she came underneath and held that with me. I have another person holding half that weight. That's incredible. You work on the helping the professionals talk about it better. I'm going to work on the non-professionals out there. We need Because hey, we need both. We yeah, need yeah. both. What's the rest of your day look like before we say goodbye to one another? I left today completely open because sometimes, well, most of the time when I do any kind of speaking, it, it's very tiring. It's very rewarding, but it's also tiring. So I purposely didn't plan anything. I'm going to kind of go with the flow. Well, I hope you enjoy today's flow. I'm going to try to get outside. That in itself is the best therapy in the world. Well, sunshine, sure. Getting outside. A bunch of things I could say, but the primary thing is I really do appreciate you reaching out, reaching out again, talking so openly uh, and sharing in the way you did. All right, Dal, take care. Enjoy your day. Thanks again. Thanks again, Sean. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Dale in North Carolina. Thank you, Dale. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And check the show notes for an additional way to reach out via a recorded message and all sorts of other goodies, including our recently launched membership site which, of course, we want you to at least know about, learn more about, and hopefully even participate in. However you are involved, we appreciate it. And that is all for episode number 152. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon. Hold up. 